Well, we all love a good story, don't we? Especially when there's a great moral lesson for us to grab hold of. Disney does this in a fine, fine way. We find Finding Nemo, perseverance is the key to reaching your goals, no matter how big or overwhelming they might feel. In Finding Nemo, Marlin never gives up. It doesn't matter what adversity he faces, the setbacks crossing an ocean, he finds Nemo because he follows his heart and he doesn't give up. When he hits struggles, and when we hit struggles, we can draw on our inner strength to push on through and just keep swimming. Or perhaps Frozen, the movie's primary lesson is to accept what makes you different, to embrace it and make it a source of your strength and not a hindrance as well as some remarkably irritating songs. <laughs> the Lion King. Running away from your troubles is not going to get you anywhere. Although you might find some really hilarious friends along the way that teach you not to sweat the small stuff, like Timon and Pumbaa, learning to hakuna matata, as it were. But at the heart, you have a responsibility. You need to own up to it. You need to make sure you're coming through for others. And we all know that Disney and fairy tales aren't true. But they seem to fulfill longings of the human heart to know an unending love, to escape death, to communicate with non-human beings, for good to triumph over evil. A heart long for these things. And a well-told story, just for a little while, satisfies those desires. I guess particularly in this season when many are thinking of Santa, for who, who for many gets to be the star of the show, I think the presents might be doing a bit of work to swing things in his favour. But the magic of Christmas, the thought that someone that has supernatural powers sees us, he knows us, he wants to bring us joy by giving us gifts that somehow, despite living far away, he can still hear the deep felt wishes of our hearts. Well, I can see how that appeals, can't you? I believe that that is because God created us for that kind of a relationship with him. That's why our hearts long for it. It's our inbuilt homing device to seek out relationship with him. It just gets massively misplaced in Santa or other things, which inevitably leads to disappointment. However, sadly, many would put Jesus in that same category as Santa. It would be nice if it was true, but I'm just a little bit old for that now. In fact, according to a huge Talking Jesus survey, 40% of people interviewed did not realise that Jesus was a real person who actually lived. With one in, 80, uh, one in four 18 to 34-year-olds confidently putting Jesus in the mythical or fictional character category. Maybe you believed in him as a child, just like you believed in Santa. But now the creator of the universe, being snuggled down in an animal's feeding trough, just seems a little bit far-fetched. The story of Jesus can feel a little bit like it hits all those Disney notes too. 
a story of someone from another world who breaks into ours and miraculously displays power to disobey the natural order by walking on water, by conjuring up food and calming storms and healing people when they touch him or just with a word from him. And then there's the villains of the story, those suspicious of this otherworldly being who trap him and kill him, and it feels like all hope is lost. But then he comes back from the dead in an amazing finale and saves everyone. What a great story. But this is not a once upon a time. This is reality. But Jesus offers us a love from which we can never be parted and a promise that gets lived out that death is defeated. In the end, good will win out and peace will reign forever. You know what? Even the trees will sing and dance in a very Disney-esque way according to the Psalms. But don't just take my word for it, Jesus was a real man. Bart Ehrman, who has earned quite a lot of money writing books that question the Christian faith. Um, He certainly isn't a Christian yet, but he released a book called Did Jesus Exist? A Historical Argument for Jesus of Nazareth. Says this, the reality is that whatever else you may think about Jesus, he certainly did exist. It is a view held by virtually every expert on the planet. And we're not going to go there this morning because that's a whole separate preach. But there's uh, Josephus, a Jewish historian. There's Tacitus, a Roman historian. There's uh, Pliny the Younger, who was a Roman governor in Turkey that writes the emperor. We've got all these excerpts that aren't biblical but testify to the fact that Jesus was a man. And if you'd love to look in that more, I can point in the direction of some great resources. Or please, please book onto Alpha because it's one of the things that we cover on that course. But we can be confident from non-biblical sources that Jesus existed. But that won't change your life. It's who he was and what he did that will. According to the biblical accounts, this was no ordinary baby. The baby had come to save the people from their sins. He was the one that the prophets had spoken about, Emmanuel, God with us bringing us back into family with the creator. God sent his son to be born a human, to die for our sins and to be raised back to life, proving that death is conquered. The resurrection isn't an optional extra to this story. It was essential for so many reasons, but one of them was the momentum of the Christian faith, that those who witnessed it were telling of it and were frequently killed for it. That doesn't happen for just a nice moral story. So when Matthew starts, his docu- starts to document this real event around Jesus' birth, the arrival of this long-awaited God with us, he doesn't begin once upon a time, for that is the way of fairy tales and Star Wars, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. That would suggest that this is just made up. A lovely story with a moral to live by, some great advice for you to work at living by. But his gospel doesn't even start with that classic nativity scene. He starts with something far grittier, 
with so many un-PG moments that Ule has put on an extra youth session for us so that we can discuss some of these things without awkward lunchtime discussions, which is a heads up if you're in the room and you might not want to be. We're going to cover quite a lot of dark stuff this morning. Matthew starts with, wait for it, a genealogy. A long list of names. And you're thinking, oh, hang on, Ellie, where's the drama in that? Surely that's the names list that we kind of sneakily skim through really quickly to get to the real action. But to do that would be to miss out on some incredible revelations from God about his one big story. That God had planned for the arrival of his son before he created the earth. And that, as any good author does, he has hidden hints about this hero all over the texts before he arrives to whet our appetite for him. So Matthew starts with more of a, listen up, guys. Let me show you how this real person fits in history. This really happened. This is not merely good advice of what you must do, but good news of what has already been done. And it's a call for you to respond to it. This isn't advice that says it's all up to you to act. You better not mess it up. This is news that says somebody has already acted on your behalf. Stop trying to save yourselves because the king has already saved you. So let's read, shall we? Um, I'm going to read to you from the start of Matthew's Gospel, and it says these words, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, his mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. King David was father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of uh, Jeroam. Jeroam, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father to Shealtiel. Shealtiel is the father to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father to Abihud. Abihud, the father to Elikim. Elikim, the father to Azor. Azor, the father to Zadok. Zadok, the father to Achim. Achim, the father to Elihud. Elihud, the father to Elizar. Elizar, the father to Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. There were 14 generations, phew, and we're going to look at all those people. No, we're not going to look at all those people today. Thankfully, we're just going to look at the women today. Um, there were 14 generations from, in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, Matthew is not just padding out his account. He hasn't got a word count that he needs to hit. They are all here for a significant reason. 
He's writing at a time when there's a more communal, family-orientated society. Your family, who you belong to, who you're connected with, mattered far more than your personal accolades or accomplishments. So as you'd expect, people had a sneaky tendency to tinker about a little bit and just, well, they're a bit questionable. We'll just, like, plonk them out. We won't mention those when we do our list. But Matthew doesn't do that with Jesus. In fact, the way he writes was pretty shocking by their current cultural standards. Hopefully you notice there were five women listed for starters. And in an ancient patriarchal society, this was unheard of. In the first century, women had no legal rights. Jewish men literally thanked God each day that they had not been created a slave, a Gentile, which is a non-Jewish person, or a woman, according to Michael Green, a New Testament scholar. In fact, to add insult to injury, most of the women in this list are non-Jewish too. You get a double hit. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. Canaanites and a Moabitess. Nations considered unclean by the Jews, not allowed to enter the temple of worship. And by including them, Matthew recalls for his readers some of the more sordid parts of the Jewish history. And this certainly isn't the fluffy kid story with a lovely moral. We'll look at each of these in turn, but we'll look at the mothers of Jesus in detail and find sexual manipulation by family members in the account of Tamar. Rahab, who wasn't just a Canaanite, but earned her living from sex work. Ruth, who was racially stereotyped and suffers racial abuse and exclusion. David, who is obviously listed as the father of Solomon, but his mother was Bathsheba who is referenced not by name, but as Uriah's wife, a slam on King David for stealing her, most likely having non-consensual sex with her and killing her husband. It's from this dysfunctional family that the Messiah comes. Adultery, murder, sex workers, even those held up as, in, as our ancestors like Judah and David had morally stuffed up. If these were our ancestors that we discovered while we were stuck at home in lockdown a few years ago on Ancestry.com, I'm pretty sure we wouldn't have been straight on Facebook going, guess what? I'm, a, I'm related to an adulterous rapist and murderer. These are not people that we would generally go, this is what's going to give Jesus credibility. But Matthew does shout about them because he names these women because they were the excluded and the mistreated for cultural, racial, moral-based reasons. And yet Jesus brings them into family with him. And it's the same for us now, that Jesus includes the excluded. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you come to Jesus and repent of your sin and believe in him, his grace covers you. Everyone can be included because of what Jesus has done we're not judged by what we've done or what's been done to us, by what, by what he has done. We can come to Jesus knowing what he has done for us and receive his healing. Because in Jesus we're all equals, we're equally sinful and lost, but we're also equally accepted and loved. God is not ashamed to call us family. So let's look at some of these women. These aren't notable women of respect, as I've mentioned, each carried with them stigma, but all are honoured in the family tree of our Saviour. 
the family tree shows that the last in line when it came to holiness come first. And sinners find refuge in Jesus who came for outsiders. So first up, Tamar. The Jews would have gladly forgotten about her role in history. The context was that the people had flourished under Abraham and Isaac. They had walked with God. But then it began a downward spiral as Jacob's son fell. They sold off their brother Joseph into slavery. And his brother Judah was one of the instigators. Judah had an adulterous relationship with a Canaanite woman and had two boys. Tamar marries one of them called Er, who is wicked and dies. And Leverite marriage, which is common in the Middle East and still in some parts of Africa today, says that if you're married to a son and they die, you pass to the next son so as to continue their line and to protect the widow. It's important we understand the context so that we don't judge Tamar by our privileged position or our cultural difference. So she marries the next son, Onan, as was the custom of the time. And Onan has sex with Tamar, but he withdraws before he ejaculates so that he wouldn't get her pregnant, so that he doesn't have to raise another man's offspring. And Tamar would have been gossiped about by the community for being barren, whilst his reputation appears intact. He seems to be doing all the right things publicly. He's taken her into his household, but actually he's taking advantage of her and not taking responsibility for her. He's the powerful, and he is oppressing the powerless. And according to the account, God kills him off for his sin. And then, as was the custom, she waits for the little brother to grow up to be old enough to marry. However, Judah thinks, she's cursed. Two of my boys have died when they've been married to her. So he sends her away rather than giving her to son three, and that casts her out into shame and isolation. She hasn't got any options left, and she is in a hopeless situation. God's people, Judah and his sons, were supposed to be the heroes that looked out for the oppressed, but actually they're the villains. It's her right to be under the protection of this family, and so she does what she has to do to survive. So Tamar, helpless, forgotten, downtrodden, tricks Judah into sleeping with her, by dressing as a sex worker. Her face failed. And he sleeps with her, not realizing her identity, because he's just focusing on his own pleasure. And she gets pregnant. And Judah finds out that she has got pregnant, and he calls for her public death. He says, bring her out and burn her to death for sleeping around, and bringing shame on this community. And then she announces with proof, his staff and his seal, that he is the father of this pregnancy, bold and courageous. And his response is that he confesses his sin and declares her righteousness. You can read about it in Genesis 28. God has raised up a voice from the margins to put his people back on track, and that voice was Tamar. So by the time they go back to Egypt, Judah's already a changed man. He offers himself up in place of his brother, Benjamin. And Tamar risked scandal, humiliation, and death to have a child and fulfill her duty. Tamar gets honored 
in her former place of shame. Because one of the twins she bore, Perez, goes on to be an ancestor of King David and later Jesus. Tamar is part of Jesus' family. So if today you feel downtrodden and forgotten and taken advantage of, or trapped in what feels like a hopeless and lonely situation, Jesus offers you a place in his family too. Our next mother, Rahab, comes into God's big story when Jewish spies get sent out to scout out Jericho. And they get into trouble and Rahab, at great personal risk, takes them in and she hides them from the government police of the day. And she provides critical intelligence to help Israel and she gets grafted into the Jewish nation as a result. But she's also a very unlikely hero because Rahab is also a prostitute marginalised in Jericho, despised by people, yet risks her life to save others. Hopeful that the God of these spies is going to come through for her. Her home is in the city wall. It's the most vulnerable part. It's far away from the king who lives in the centre of the city. But she has faith in God and his people that they will spare her when the city wall falls. She packs her family into this home And the wall collapses around them, yet her household is spared. Now this refugee prostitute marries a prince in a major plot twist. Salmon, one of the leading men in the tribe of Judah, a high-born Salmon, marries a low-born Rahab. Insiders don't marry outsiders, especially not from enemy groups but she goes from being an enemy of God's people into family. Jesus also brings the outsider, the vulnerable, the exploited and the tainted by sin in and offers us family. And we don't know whether Rahab chose to sell her body for sex or whether there was no other option, but we do know that God loved her and gave her a fresh start in a new family. And he offers us the same when we come to him knowing that we are forgiven, our slate is wiped clean. On to the next mother, an outsider, Ruth. No sordid sexual backstory, but Rahab wasn't Jewish. A Moabite. Oh, sorry, Ruth. Um, Oh yeah, I said, but like Rahab, she wasn't Jewish. There we go. Um, She was a Moabite. She was one of the Jews' sworn enemies. But famine had struck in Israel and it had pushed the Israelites into Moab. To survive, Ruth ends up, uh, to survive, Ruth ends up married to the son of Elimelech and Naomi. And her husband, her brother-in-law and her father-in-law all die. She leaves absolutely everything she knew to be there for her mother-in-law, Naomi, laying down her life in effect for another knowing that her race would make her an outsider, someone that the locals would be suspicious of as she goes back to Israel. She was unwelcomed and referred to as Ruth the Moabitess, drawing attention to her otherness, because Moabitesses were cruelly stereotyped for their sexual promiscuity, and therefore she was seen as dangerous in society. And the person that should, by rights, have married Ruth turns her away and doesn't want to be associated with her. But Boaz sees her. And using the capital that his name and reputation afforded him, 
at cost to himself, gifts to Ruth marriage, absorbing her shame, welcoming her into community. Boaz is named her redeemer, a family member who would pay what could not be paid to rescue out of shame and restore the family name. And Ruth becomes the great-grandmother of King David, ancestor of Jesus, who came to rescue us and restore us into his family and put us under his protection. Next mother, we're getting there, exploited Bathsheba. King David cops an eyeful of Bathsheba, the youngest granddaughter of one of his closest advisors and a married woman while she's bathing and decides he wants her. So he uses his power to get her and he gets her pregnant and then he attempts to manipulate her husband. Um, But when that fails, he sends somebody in basically to assassinate her husband, make sure that he doesn't come back from the front line. And the consequences of that sin spiral on through David's relationships with his children. But God sees the exploited and the abused. He sees how the powerful take advantage of the less powerful. In Jesus, we get offered real family and real security. And I believe that these women are not set out as examples of awful sin, but of boldness and faithfulness and courage in impossible circumstances. They all share something with Mary, our last mother. They all play an important part in God's plan. Women honoured and celebrated in Jesus' story. Mary, from out in the sticks, Nazareth, a joke of a place. Nathaniel, who goes on to become one of Jesus' disciples, says, can anything good come from there? No one respects them. That's not where the hero's supposed to come from. But in this place, to a probably poor, illiterate, unimportant Jewish teenager, Mary, comes an angel announcing, don't be afraid. The saviour of the world is coming. And get this, you're going to be his mother. And Mary responds in ultimate bravery, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Her yes to God meant yes to an unwed pregnancy. Who was going to buy that God was really the father? She lived in an honour, shame culture where people got killed for less than this. Her being pregnant and unmarried not only reflects badly on her and her family, but the whole village. Honour killings were rife, and they still are in many parts of the world today. Her courage and faith in the face of death and certain ostracism made her remarkable. She said yes to laying down her plans and being obedient to God's ones. And we know how the story ends up, but she didn't. It's enough pressure being a mum to a normal child, let alone the creator of the universe. Yes, to a lifetime of emotions. And as a mother, you take any pain that you could in the place of your child. You would die for them if you needed to. But she would be robbed of that. Her yes to God was acknowledging, even unknowingly, saying yes to watch her boy slain in a horrific act of violence in a criminal's death on a cross, acute and agonizing. But at this point, she doesn't know that. She makes a hasty getaway to Elizabeth, understandably, given the culture she's raised in. But she knows that Joseph's got three choices ahead of him. 
she's betrothed. He could choose justice. He could act in line with this conservative community. He could accuse her of adultery, where she would publicly be stoned at her father's door. Joseph would lump the first one, and then the entire community would carry on till she died. The whole community is shamed by an unwed pregnancy. The whole community corrects the balance. Keep in mind, she's probably about 13. Joseph had already jumped to option two. He was a good man. He chose mercy. He decided to divorce her quietly, to speak to her father, to break off the engagement. She's never going to get married. The village are unlikely to do business with her dad. She'll be lonely, but at least she's alive. And then there's the third and most unexpected option, the one that comes about from angelic visitation to Joseph. There's grace. Joseph could choose to declare this boy his. All the judgment shifts from Mary onto him. His reputation gets tarnished, but she is saved. Because grace is self-sacrificial, and it moves towards the shame and absorbs it. God could leave us punished to name our sins and make us take the consequences. He could show us mercy but distance himself from our sin and shame. Or he can claim us as his own and bring us into family, make us his legal children and show us grace upon grace. We don't need to clean up for God. Christianity isn't about self-improvement. It's not good advice from a nice story. It's a good news story. And the bad news is that we need saving. We might not use the word sin, but many of us are aware of all the stuff that we do that isn't right. The thought of that being seen terrifies us as kids that we are going to end up on the naughty list, but now far more as adults. How terrible would it be if someone saw everything you ever thought about? It becomes so much harder to believe that anyone could possibly love us enough to be willing to die for us. It's that countercultural revelation that actually we are not enough. We can't just power on through and keep on swimming. But He is enough. Jesus always seeks out and welcomes those that society says are too broken to have any hope of getting fixed. The sick that need a doctor. That's why the Son of God came to die. On the cross, taking the punishment for every bad thought or word or deed we have ever committed. Not just for some of them, but for all of them. That death wasn't the end for him and it doesn't need to be the end for us either. That he knows your deepest shame and loves you completely. Our Emmanuel, God with us. He loves us literally to death. His death and back out the other side into life again. So our choice is whether to step out in faith and believe that he did that for us. That it's not just a nice story or a good moral lesson, but the good news that he has done it. That we can step free from our shame into a new life with him as our saviour. That the hero of this true story loves you. He came for you. And he invites you to have fullness of life with him today. But how do we respond to this invitation? Well, God names these women, the neglected, the outsider, the forgotten. And he knows 
your name. And he gives you the option of a new identity in him and to be family with him. There's room for all of them in his story and there is room for you too. This is the good news, that Jesus has done it. And one day everything will be put right and we can have a powerful hope for the future that it will all end well. And if it isn't well, then it isn't the end. And that powerful hope and his presence will give us peace and strength to face the difficulties and suffering of the present because these things don't necessarily just go away. Sometimes God breaks in and heals in an instant. And sometimes we walk a lifetime of that suffering, but we have hope of what is to come. So I want to encourage you today not to say God's no for him when he says a big yes to you. Not to say that I am too messy or too broken or too much of an outsider for God to want me, but allow him to speak a yes over each one of us. To bring your pain or your shame or both before the God who loves you beyond measure and know that none of it is too big for him to deal with, but all of it is too big for you to deal with alone. God is so kind. Thursday night we had our leadership team meeting and I cried all over the leadership team um, because there is so much pain in this church at the moment and it feels like we've walked such a long season of so much pain and so much heartbreak and so many people that I love struggling through horrific stuff. And the reality is we live in a dark world where one in four women will be subject to domestic abuse at some point in their life. One in six to seven men, where I found some stats from the government website when they did a poll that said um, 97% of women aged 18 to 24 have been sexually harassed. 96% of them um, didn't report the situations because they believed that nothing would change. Research further revealed that people who were groped, followed, pressurised into sexual activity did not find their experiences serious enough to report. of all adult women aged between 16 and 74 in England and Wales have experienced sexual assault at least once since the age of 16. 5.7% of all men in the same category. We live in a broken, fallen world that is full of darkness. And our church needs to be a place where the mess can be here because Jesus is the only one that is big enough to deal with it. So I'm going to invite the band to come back and join us. We're going to spend some time praying. If there's something that God has spoken over you as as I've been speaking, I encourage you to pray into it. Pray with somebody else. If he's not stirred you personally for stuff, there is so much darkness we can be praying into in this time. I'll pray for us quickly. Father, I thank you that you are good news for us, that none of us are ruled out, that you welcome all of us into family that there's no amount of mess or pain or numbness even where we've shut ourselves off from feeling that pain because it feels too overwhelming. There is no amount of hopelessness that cannot be overcome by your wonderful light. The light that shines, as we've seen on the cross, the cross has got hope written on it because that's what it means for us. We pray, Holy Spirit, move amongst us, stir our hearts as we respond to you. That your will will be done in us. Amen.